you know, if you have enough money and you're inclined to do it, you can hire a professional church consultant and they'll come in and they will evaluate your church, which wouldn't be a bad thing to do at all. I'm not against that at all. That would be a really good thing to do. And they would give us a frank and fair and reasonable evaluation of our church. And they would kind of like lay a metrics on our church. And they would kind of like measure our church. Like, what is it a good church? And what are the church's strengths? And what are the church's weaknesses? And stuff like that. Or wouldn't it be something if... Jesus himself came to the church and he walked around for a while. And then he said, well, let me meet with the pastors and the deacons and some of the key men and women of the church. Because I would like to tell you what I think of your church. (laughs) That would be interesting, wouldn't it? How many would you like to be at that meeting? You're like, yeah, I think I think what's the right answer, pastor? Mike, this would be good, wouldn't it, Mr. Chairman of the Deacon Board, if we had Jesus just walk in and go, sit down, because I'm going to tell you what I think of evangelism. We would want to know, wouldn't we? We would just like, tell me Jesus. We need to know. And what we have is amazing text of Scripture, which every week I teach on them, I get more excited about them. Seven letters to the church, to each church, which are addressed to the churches, This is Jesus evaluating the church, telling us what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly about the church. Okay, so everybody pay real careful attention. If you're a young person, pay attention to what I'm saying today. Put away your phone if you need to. I want your heart. I want you to hear me today. Okay, I don't want to be all owly and mean about this. And if you're looking at your Bible on your phone, that's awesome. I'm all for that. I like that. But I want you to pay attention today because Jesus is talking to the church. Are you listening? Jesus is walking among the lampstands of the church and he's evaluating Every heart. Matter of fact, the, te- the, the message is he searches minds and hearts and it comes out of our text today. Jesus is looking at the church. He's looking at every member of the church, young and old and in between, and he has an opinion about it. He, he knows what is good. He knows what is not good, and he knows what needs to happen. And it would probably be a really good idea, since he's going to come back someday and judge the living and the dead, if we listen to what he has to say and say, well, you tell me now so that I have time to kind of line things up the way you want them to be. Now let's read the letter to the church of Thyatira. This is in Revelation chapter 2, and it's in, it begins in verse 18. This is the longest of all the letters, and goes all the way to verse 29. So let's read it together. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works... Love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. 
Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. Now, to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast to what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels." As I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a text, isn't it? Does it bring some questions up in your mind? It sure ought to. Pretty straightforward stuff. You know, if you've been in these messages, you know that there are five things that every one of these letters to the churches has in common. And they're fascinating just to go through and it kind of makes it neat outlining. Outlining is very easy because you can just look through these five different things that are true about each of the churches. And the first one of these things is Jesus identifies himself in a different way for each of the churches. So his first way he identifies himself to one church is different than the way he identifies himself to another church. And in the first chapter of Revelation, you have this vision of the Son of Man. Remember that? And it's just a shocking vision of the Son of Man. But then you have in every church, he says, this is who I am, and it's unique to that church. And so what is he, how does he self-identify to the church in Thyatira? Well, he says, these things says the Son of God. That sounds common, but it's the only place in the book of Revelation where he's called, he calls himself the Son of God. He calls himself the Son of Man in other places. In Revelation, this is the only place where he calls himself the Son of God. And there's a reason for that. And then it says, he describes himself this way, with eyes like a flame of fire. And you know that's just getting at, I can evaluate, I see through things with eyes like a flame of fire. And feet, in one of the translations, I guess the IV is, is probably helpful in that. Feet like burnished bronze. See, it's very unusual. The feet are a metal that's very unusual. This is how he identifies himself. And there's a bit of identity of Jesus that's later in the text. In verse 23, he identifies himself as he who searches the minds and hearts. And he specifically says there, I want the churches to know that I search the minds and hearts. And then in the very end, and we'll, we'll talk about this at the very end, he also calls himself in a really kind of cryptic, mysterious, enigmatic way. He calls himself the, the morning star or the day star. This is Jesus' self-identity. Would you agree with me that even if you don't understand that, it's like, this is somebody you might want to listen to. This is somebody you might want to hear from. There's another point of commonality which just surfaced as we go through these. It just really fascinates me that all the letters are the same. Jesus is using irony. It's a form of, of humor. It's, kind of a, it's a really kind of sophisticated and sharp form of humor. He's using irony, thick irony with each of the churches. And here's how he does it. He identifies something about the city that the city considers itself great at or that the city's known for. And then he kind of trumps it with who he is. Have you noticed this as we've studied this? I didn't know this before I started through this. He'll say about one of the cities, you're the crown city, and I'm going to crown your believing citizens with life, right? And he's going to do this today. Here's a couple examples. 
Why does he call himself the son of God and not the son of man? Did you know that the, in the emperor worship was the great pressure on the people was emperor worship. And one of the emperors had self-identified himself as, guess what? The son of God. And so Jesus is getting in his face and saying, I am the son of God. He's telling the people, don't worry about that intimidating dictator. He's not the son of God. I'm the son of God. You might want to keep that in mind. He is the son of God. And then what is this about the, the, the discerning that the eyes are burning? He says, I'm looking at you. I'm evaluating you. I'm seeing you. There's some things that need to get straightened out in your church. And I'm giving you time to straighten them out. But if you don't, I'm coming. This is serious. And then he says, what is this thing about feet with burnished bronze? Did you know that in Thyatira, they were well known for a special kind of process that they used for zinc to have the strongest metal at that time known to mankind. And it gave them an advantage in warfare. And he says... He uses a unique word for a metal that's not used anywhere else in the Bible to say, my feet are of a stronger metal than your strongest metal that you're so proud of. Pastor Lounsborough and I were doing some research together on this. And he enlightened me about something I didn't know. And that is that Captain America has a shield. And, and, and I, I studied this. Captain America's shield is made of vibranium. How many of you knew that? Oh, you all knew that. Yeah, yeah. Kobe, you're with me now, aren't you? Yeah, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Vibranium. He has a shield of, which is the, I guess it's like the ultimate metal. Nobody can mess with him because he's got vibranium. Jesus is saying, you think you're strong? I'm stronger than all of that. He's, and he's encouraging the people. This is a powerfully encouraging. It's very sophisticated. There's some irony. There's some humor. There's some sophisticated humor in this. And so anyway, Think about that. I'll just tell you before I go on, and that is this. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what your difficulty is. I don't know what your heartache is. I don't know what your weakness is. I don't know what your temptation is. I don't know what your struggles are. I don't know who your enemies are, but I know this. A vision of the Son of Man is what you need. You need to see Jesus for who he is. Powerful, strong, ultimate, mighty. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He trumps everything. He's ultimate. He's primary. He's preeminent. He's everything. Keep that in mind. Keep a vision of the Son of Man, the Son of God in mind, and it's going to help you a lot with whatever it is that you're going through this week. Jesus is greater than the greatest thing about any city. And thank you, uh, Pastor Lounsborough, for the helpful uh, research there. Yeah. And then, uh, number two, uh, Jesus gives what we would call maybe a commendation, or he says, this is what you're doing right. And you see this in verse 19. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, patience. And then he says this, and I like this. This is kind of neat. And I see your works, they're like getting better than they used to be. And your, your, your later works are greater than your former works. Bible commentaries, uh, commentators often point out that if you compare Thyatira with Ephesus, they're kind of like mirror opposites. Here you have Ephesus, and Ephesus is doctrinally a very strong church, but their love is growing weaker Right? You left your first love. And here you have Thyatira, and they need to shore up some things doctrinally, but they have this, this works and this patience, and he's commending that you, they're getting better. They're growing. They're growing better. Thyatira is a good church. It's a loving church. Thyatira is a faithful church. Thyatira is a hardworking church. Thyatira was a patient church. 
And on top of all that, it was growing and it was progressing. And I think it's just so interesting. We want our church to grow. We actually kind of want our church to get bigger, fill the balcony, you know, be all that. That's true. You know, we think about that a lot. We're Americans. We think big. That's the way we are. We want things to grow. We want things to get bigger. We are, there's a lot of pressure on church leaders to see to it the church gets bigger, you know. And I, I got to be honest with you. I think about that a lot. I like the church to get bigger. You know, and if it means that a lot of people are coming to know the Lord, if it means a lot of people are blessed, if it means a lot of families are getting strong, if it means a lot of kids are going to camp. We want the church to get bigger. Of course we do. But is, this is so interesting. As I've studied this, Jesus evaluates all seven of these churches and he never says to any church, I am so upset with you because your attendance figures are off. That's interesting. He says, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be loyal. I want you to be pure. I want you to do what's right. I want you to remember that I'm coming. But he never says that's a puny offering. He doesn't count. Like, so when we evaluate church, we tend to count people and money. And I guess we're an organization, so that's, that's important. But, but when Jesus evaluates church, he has piercing eyes and he sees our hearts. He sees our purity. He sees our holiness. He sees our sincerity. If a church grows and it doesn't grow because it's a healthy, genuine, biblically-based, spirit-empowered growth, it's not really growth, it's swelling and it doesn't please the Lord, a church could get bigger and be worse. And so it, let's keep in mind while we're, tr- while we're praying for an increase and we're inviting all of our friends to come to know the Lord and we're eager to see the church grow, let's keep in mind, what does Jesus think about the church? What is Jesus saying about the church right now? Is he okay with the church? Is he, is he, he's always evaluating. So he comes along there with a commendation. But then he comes along in verses 20 through 23 with a, with a condemnation. In other words, what they're doing wrong. Or, or it's really, this is actually the form of a threat. Let me read it again. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. It's kind of like the last church. Sexual immorality and idolatry. A common problem. Still a common problem. Really, what is sin? The sin that you and I commit, that we struggle with, but what is that? But it is spiritual idolatry. It's giving to something else what belongs to God. What is that but adultery? It's being loyal to something else instead of being loyal to God. You and I can commit spiritual adultery. You and I can commit spiritual idolatry. It's pretty serious stuff. Plus, immorality is pretty common among Christian people. Secret immorality. And I thought about this. I thought, wow, Jesus doesn't just say, I see what you do publicly. Jesus says he searches the minds and the hearts. So where there's immorality in our minds and hearts, he searches that. That ought to just humble us. That ought to just humble us. That ought to just like, that put the fear of God in us. God, you see and you evaluate. Even if I try to hide from somebody else, I am he who searches. And, and so he says about this, indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed. Do you get what he's doing? He says, she likes to go to bed. That's what he's saying. I'm going to put her in bed, a sick bed. That's what he's saying. It's the idiom there. And then he goes on and he says, um, Indeed, I will cast her into sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, and this is hopeful, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. I'll explain that in a minute. And all the churches shall know, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. That's powerful. That's useful. 
Get that embedded in your heart. He says to the churches, this is what I want you to know about me. I know you. And I search your mind and heart. You can't hide from me. You can't play. You can't pretend. You can't be a hypocrite with me. I, I can search the minds and hearts. And then he says this, and I will give each one according to your works. So again, comparing Ephesus and Thyatira, Ephesus is strong against false teaching and growing weak in love. Thyatira is weak against false teaching, but they're growing stronger in love. But the God wants the church to be both. God wants evangel to be both. Let's be both, right? Not just a church that's all fired up and passionate and loving, but weak on doctrine and weak on church discipline and weak on sin and weak on holiness. Or not just a church that's all like kind of hard on people and, and not loving, but can we be both? Truth and love in balance. This is what Jesus wants. He wants us to love people, even when they're struggling with sin. But he wants us to love them enough that we help them get out of their sin and we never let them stay there. Get it? And I mean, they, I mean, that's, that's us too, right? He wants you to know he loves you. And he wants you to know that if you're doing things and thinking things that aren't pleasing to him, he can set you free and he expects you not to continue in that. So this is what the, teach, the scriptures are teaching. Powerful stuff. Notice the people in the passage. There's this Jezebel. Well, who's that? Well, it could have been a woman whose name was Jezebel. Probably not, though, because this is such common Old Testament reference. We still use it. You know, anybody here name their daughter Jezebel? I'm hoping that nobody says yes. I'm kind of like cooked. If I, oh, that's a nice name. Yeah. Uh, no, they don't. Why is that? Well, because Jezebel is not a flattering term. You Jezebel, you know, that's not what you call people you like. Because it's an Old Testament term for this immoral kind of shrew of a woman that was trouble and she had a bad end and it went, it went poorly. And so he says, this is a Jezebel. I think that's what he's doing. He's using a, a figure of speech, Jezebel. And she must have been attractive. She must have been a, a really powerful teacher. She must have been influential because she was influencing people. Now, let's talk about women in the church, okay? Let's not kid around. Women are influential everywhere. Let's get that straight. It's the way it's supposed to work. <laughs> Women are influential everywhere. You know, like I'm the head of the home and my wife is the neck that turns the head kind of thing. You know how that is. Yeah. Women are influential. They are. If you know the church, you know that women are influential in the church. Some of their influence is not good. There are women who are really, <laughs> they're a bad influence. Am I right? And if you like, you know, don't like look like you know this too well, but how many of you know there are women that can be a really bad influence? You're like, Yeah. Some women are really good at being a bad influence, right? Yeah, yeah. And then there are women that are really a good influence. They're godly women. Okay, I'm in an African-American church this week. It was so awesome. In the African-American church, they have a, 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 a tradition in a lot of the churches that they have a church mother. It's really not a bad idea. I was trying to think who'd be the church mother here. Anyway, there, there, there's a church mother. And the, the, she's not an authority, but she is honored in the church. And she's influenced. She's known as a very godly woman. And she's known as a praying woman. And she's known as a deep woman of great influence. And nothing really happens in the, in the African-American church like that unless everybody kind of makes sure that the, the church mother is okay. The Bible doesn't explicitly teach that. I get that. But in the Bible, you will notice that godly women, and it's throughout the New Testament, in the narratives of Acts and in the teaching of the epistles, a church sometimes can be identified by, are they, are they being influenced by godly women or are they being influenced by ungodly women? 
That's interesting. So if you're a woman and you're here today, I just commend you. I thank you. We love you. We're grateful for you. We need you. Be all that you can be for God. Walk with God. Please live faithfully. We need you. We love you. We admire you. We pay attention to you. You matter to us. You're good for us. Where would we be without you? And if you're ever tempted to weaken, please, whatever you do, people depend on you. By all means, before you die, reach a place where you are understood by God as a sincere, godly woman. Satan is going to try to take you the other way. And so you have, what's really interesting about Thyatira is if you know the Bible a little bit, and if you study the book of Acts, which is the historic narrative of the church, there was, this, there was a well-known Bible woman that came from Thyatira. She was a pretty interesting lady. She was wealthy, a businesswoman, and she went over into Macedonia, right? She was in, in, in Philippi. And she was influential in the founding of the church in Philippi. And she was a businesswoman from Thyatira. She was a maker of dye in Thyatira. They had these shells that you could make purple with and was unique in the world. And so when we study the Bible, we like to kind of theorize what maybe, maybe, maybe Lydia was the spark plug that started the church in Thyatira. Or maybe Lydia had workers that worked for her or with her that she influenced for Christ and influenced the church in Thyatira to begin. Certainly they knew her there and they respected her there. How cool is that? So which of these would you want to be when you get to your funeral and the pastor preaches your funeral, you want him to say Lydia. You don't want him to say Jezebel. Amen. All right. Now we have that behind us. Okay. Now there's a correction that's interesting here. Uh, a command. So you have who is Jesus, and then you have what is he like, and then what is he doesn't like, and then what does he want you to do about what he doesn't like? And this is in verses 24 and 25. Now to you I say, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, you haven't followed Jezebel, who have, oh, excuse me, I got to back up. What does it mean, I'm going to kill your kids? That seems a little harsh. You know, it's like, oh, well, it's a reference to her offspring. He's saying, when you influence other people and they follow your influence, they're going to come, you're going to come under my judgment and the people you influence are also going to come under my judgment. Your offspring. You see that? So false doctrine is damning, deadly, dangerous. We want to be against it because if you influence somebody with false doctrine, you're going to die, they're going to die. I mean, are you paying attention? This is important. So then he says, to you, I say, to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put no other burden on you. And then listen to this tender and warm and sincere thing. He says, hold fast to what you have until I come. I like that. When you get older, you think that way a lot. You know, an, an older person dies faithful and you just go, God, let, I don't want to die right now. But when I do, I want to finish like they did faithfully. Right? Let me finish faithful, strong to the end of the tape. Hold fast to what you have until I come. I, I think that's a good word for our church. This is a good church. It's not perfect. We've got a lot of to work on. But you know, it's been a good, faithful, Bible-believing, fundamental church. Hold fast to that until I come. It's a loving, sweet church. Good people who really love the Lord, who are sincere and trying to follow the Lord. Hold fast to what's good until I come. Keep doing that. But there is this other piece, you know, of course. And, and that is about... Uh, look at look in, in Revelation chapter 2, and I want you to notice in verse 21, 
what he says, this is just interesting. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her in a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her in the great tribulation, unless they repent. That's a, that's a sweet thing. I gave her time to repent. That, you know, he has every right to strike us dead with lightning, take us to hell right now. I was walking through a public place the other day. A lady says, how you doing? I go, well, for a guy that belongs in hell, I'm doing great. She's like, yeah, it's kind of a weird thing to say, but, you know, it's like, it was weird. I, I know that, but I was trying, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I deserve to be in hell, you know, and, and here I am. And so I'm doing good. And, and so we do too. That's the correction there. I want to ask you something. What are you struggling with? Or what are you suffering right now? Or what are you struggling with? You, he's saying, be faithful until I come. Later on, he says, you know, here with the churches. And I'll, I'll give you the, the uh, be faithful until I come. What are, you, what are you struggling with right now? What are you tempted? What, what like dark temptations do you struggle with? Maybe nobody knows. Maybe people know, but don't. What is it you struggle with? Because I want to encourage you here. Right now, we tend to think, oh, this is just like when your hand's in the fire, it's going on forever, right? You're like, ah, right? it could be a minute. If your hand's in a fire for a minute, it's horrible. And when you're suffering, it's horrible. When you're tempted and you just keep wrestling, don't answer out loud, but like how many of you just keep wrestling with these besetting temptations in your life and you think, when am I going to get over this? When am I going to be able to overcome this temptation? Or why is it that God has given me this especially difficult temptation that I see that other people don't have and I've been plagued with this temptation? And and I want to talk to you for a minute. Listen to me. I want to talk to you for a minute that feel that way. Like you have an especially difficult life. You're either suffering or especially that you have this temptation and maybe even people don't know about it and it's very hard. God has actually called you in a special way to that. The Puritans called it the use of our sin. God, in his sovereignty, he takes even our weakness and he works it for his glory. And, and what he says is this light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's the way that the scriptures say that. So here's maybe a, here's maybe a helpful way. This is maybe a helpful way for us to Maybe help you understand this. Okay, so let's just say the year 2016 starts off this way for you. <laughs> you are going to have your friends over for dinner, and you're going to watch your team is in a bowl game, so you're going to watch a bowl game, and you're going to have, and your wife has decided she's going to fix your favorite, you know, stuff to watch football with, and you, you invite your, your best favorite friends over that you just get along with like brothers and sisters. And it's just going to be a great day. But then your wife kind of burns the stuff. And you have to get out peanut butter and bread. And your friends call and they can't come. And your team loses the bowl game. And late that night, your tooth starts to ache really bad. And it hurts worse than any toothache you've ever had. So you have to go to the emergency room. And they have to give you an emergency root canal. And they don't happen to have any pain medication. So you have to do it without pain medication. And you're really in a lot of pain on the way home. And they charge you a lot of money. And you have to pay cash. because you know. And so you're on the way home. And the guy stops in front of you. And you're in so much pain. Your reaction time is slow. And you rear-end him. And, and now you call your insurance company. And they say, your wife forgot to pay the premium. And you don't have insurance. 
And your car doesn't run because you busted your radiator. So you call your mother-in-law. You have to call your mother-in-law. And your mother-in-law says, you are a loser. Are you serious? My, my daughter couldn't have married a bigger loser than you. She comes over. She hauls your server and home, you know. And you're like, that was a terrible January 1st. And you just think, I've never had a was like Alexander in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. You're like, seriously? This is going to be a really bad year for me. But then on, you know, on the 2nd of January, a friend calls and they won the lottery. They shouldn't have been playing the lottery, but they won and they decided to give you $100 million. So they gave you $100 million and then you go and buy your company and now you're your boss's boss. And you make life twice as bad for him as he made it for you. And it's just being, it's a great year now. It's going pretty good. Isn't it right? And you just, you're doing better. You decide you're going to take off the last six months of the year and vacation in Tahiti like you do. And so when you get done with that, you're going to have another big party and your team is in the bowl game again. So you say to your wife, you have a new house. And so your friends, they do come over, of course, right? Because you have a hundred million dollars and friends all come over then. And and everything was just perfect, you know, and, and you're watching your, your team and they're just running away with a win. And, and then you, and then your friend, your friend says to you, so how's your year been? And you go, man, this has been the greatest year of my life. And they go, really? Because it seemed to me like last year it didn't start out too well. And you go, huh, come to think of it, that's right. But I forgot all about that. So right now you might be really suffering and, you know, my story is bizarre, but you might be really suffering temptation and hardship and difficulty and you think, why me, God? But there will come a day when you look back and you go, <laughs> it was just for a moment. It's over now. And this is going on and on and on and on and on. You say, well, God, why did you call me to this? A guy was going through a really horrible time. Things were awful for him. And yet he was tough. He was kind of working his way through this difficult time. But his dad's heart was broken for him. And every night his dad went to bed. And every night he wept. God, why are you letting my son go through this? God, would you please let my son not go through this? This is so painful. Every night he went to bed. And every night it's like his joy was gone. And he prayed, God, why you let my son go through this? And one night God spoke to him. And God said, I need to put your son through this to make him what I'm making of him. And then he said, the tears went away. Now God is allowing some of us to have great sorrow. God is allowing some of us to have great difficulty. God is allowing some of you to face unspeakably difficult temptations. But is, there's going to be an eternal reward in heaven when Jesus returns. Can I get a witness on that? That's pretty exciting. Yeah, you're supposed to say amen when I say that part right there. So here's the message to the church in Taylor. Uh, some suggestions for us. Are you ready? Um, here, here it is. And, and by the way, the, the promise in verses 26 to 29 to those who overcome, he who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. They'll be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. What's that about? He's quoting Psalm 2, right? And, 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 and also, as I receive from my father, I'll give him... The morning star, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, John chapter, by the way, I was looking for this last week, First John chapter 5 and verses 4 and 5, use that term overcomer and say that's true about everybody who's genuinely saved overcomes. Get it? So in other words, every time this is, every time this, those who overcome comes up in the passage, it's not talking about those who don't lose their salvation because you can't lose your salvation if you really have it. 
It's a gift from God, not of works. So any man should boast. You're given a gift from God. God doesn't take back the gifts that he gives. They're, they're eternal. But you persevere, you overcome. And this is an evidence that your faith is genuine and that you're not a false professor. And that's what it says in 1 John chapter 5. It says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19 that there are some who profess faith in Jesus Christ and they carry on for a while, then they go away so that it will be manifest that they were not ever really of us. That's in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. And so what I'm saying is those who overcome means, every time you hear those who overcome, what it means is those who are genuinely saved, who will prove that they are genuinely saved by the perseverance of their overcoming, they land on their feet and they lift for God. Now, what is he saying about them? And this is really fascinating. So are there, are all these guilds in Thyatira? And even today in the archaeology, they can see that there are the, that, that there are a number of different guilds in, in Thyatira, many different ones for all kinds of different things. There were guilds for bakers, bronze workers, clothiers, cobblers, weavers, tanners, dyers, and potters. And to be in the guild, you had to be in the guild in order to get the work. Your work depended on it. But to be in the guild involved compromise with false doctrine in the temple of Apollo, which included eating meat sacrificed to idols and sometimes sexual immorality. Is this starting to make sense now? This is what he's saying. So what he's saying, Jesus is saying to the people, you need to be faithful to me even if you have to lose your job. And so the faithful ones lost their jobs in their guilds, their professional jobs, their trades. And so they had to work as the lowest of the low slaves. And they had to be paid the very low income that nobody else would want to make. What does he say to these people who overcome? You that have been pushed to the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. You that used to have a trade in a guild and used to have some pride in your work and all that. And now you're just like the offscouring. You are going to rule the nation someday. That's what he says. You're going to rule. And there's, a level, there's another subtlety in this. He's saying, I want you to tell Jezebel that she's disciplined out of the church. I gave her time to repent, and now I'm expecting you to kick her out of the church. And then he's kind of subtly saying, because, I mean, after all, someday you're going to rule the nation. So if you can't run the church, how are you going to rule the nations? And I hear that. Do you hear that? Hey, listen, we're destined to rule the nations. Maybe it would be a good idea if we got our act together. And that we did what God told us to do and did it the way he said. So, the, again, the message to the church in the, in the, in the morning star um, will belong to you. What is that? Well, you want to look within the text itself to see the, 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 the near text doesn't really give an explanation for who is the morning star. But the extended text, the one in, there's another place in Revelation, identifies who the morning star is, what the morning, and there are other places in the scripture. And I'll give you two real quickly. One is in 2 Peter 1.19. It says that we're to be faithful to the Lord till the light shines in a dark place and the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Revelation 22 makes it really clear who this is. Revelation 22.16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things to the churches that I am the root and offspring of David and I am the bright and morning star. Do you see this? God, okay, Jesus is saying there, if you overcome... The Father has given me the inheritance of the nations, and I'm going to rule them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, and you are going to rule with me if you overcome, if you are faithful. That's what he's saying. And he says, so, so, so God has given me them as an inheritance, and God has given you, what? Me as an inheritance. That's what he's saying. It's like, are you kidding? He gets to the end, and he says, I'm the day star, and I'm yours who overcome. 
I, the day star, and the one who... Oh, so the message to the church in Taylor, okay? First of all, be patient with those who need to repent. Can I say this to Evangel? There are people who need to repent, and you don't need to be looking around because they're you, right? How do you want people to be with you when you need to repent? It's like, you have 10 seconds, and we're going to hit you with lightning. Well, you want them to be patient. I love this. I love this, and it's true in my life. My Jesus deserves my instant repentance. Instant. But he's patient while we get that figured out. How good is that? How wonderful is that? Are you, how are you glad that God didn't just like send you to hell when you deserved it right away? You can raise your hand right there because he's looking. Yeah, you might want to do that. And, yeah, and you say, thank the Lord that he didn't. Then he gave me time to repent. So, so let's give one another time to repent. There are people here who need time. There are people here who need patience. They're a little rough around the edges. They've been, they've been through it. It's been hard for them. They didn't have the privileges that you had. They didn't have the teaching that you had. They're going to take some time. Can I say, church... Let's be patient with them. Let's be patient with them. And maybe when we need it, they'll be patient with us. So be patient with those who need to repent. Second, be an example of the, of, to those that need to repent. Best way that you can help somebody repent is show them what it looks like. Where do I get this in the text? Very, very clearly in the text is talking about their, their great faithfulness and love and their patience and their works. He commends the church in Thyatira for this. And he says, this is good about you. Thank you. This is the kind of church evangel needs to be. On the, on the one hand, we want to be we got people among us, including ourselves sometimes, that need to repent. We want to be really patient with them like God was with this Jezebel of all people. But then we also want to go, hey, Jezebel, look what repentance looks like. I'm going to help you here. Watch me repent. Your kids need to see you repent. You know one of the reasons why? Because if they're going to walk with God, guess what they're going to have to do? Do you know where I'm going with this? They're going to have to learn to repent or they're going to be off the rails with God. So if you, you know, you wouldn't think of sending your kids to school without shoes. You wouldn't think about not feeding your kid a meal at night when he's hungry. Why would you never show them what it looks like to be right with God by repenting of your sin? But we're so proud and we're so arrogant and we're so foolish that some of us, nobody's ever seen us repent. Repent. Show them what it looks like. Okay, that's, that's another one. And then here's another one. Be faithful to insist on repentance. And that's where it gets a little tough. You can't avoid this. The text is clear. You need to take care of this business. His time is up. She has had time to repent, and her followers have time to repent, and she hasn't done it, and the time's up, and now it's time for you to act and to act decisively and to exercise church discipline and, and her send her out of the church. There is such a thing as that, that t- type of church discipline that reaches the point where you say you can't, Call yourself a Christian and continue to live like this. We're going to have to lovingly set you outside the church until you repent. And it's not a church if it doesn't do that. A church, you're destined to rule. And the word rule there is the shepherd pastor word. It's the poiman kind of pastor word. It's time to start acting like it. Before we go home, I want you to think about something. Why don't you imagine that Lois and I are on a little vacation and we're trying to save money. So we decide that we're going to spend three days in a motel six. Lois says, thank you, sweetheart. I appreciate these accommodations, you know. She's looking at the pool over in the other hotel. There's no pool at the Motel 6, right? Like the carpet is thin and the, the, the service is shabby and it smells of smoke, you know. And I take my wife and I say, well, here, we're going to have a little three-day getaway at the Motel 6. So my wife kind of sits around the room for a few minutes and then she says, you know what? I think we need a bigger screen. Let's go to Walmart and get a big screen TV. 
And I'm like, okay. And so we go to Walmart. We buy a big, what is it, Dale? 52 inches that you have in your house? 75 inches? Yeah. Dale has like the mother of all flat screen televisions. And, and, and so Lois goes, let's get one of those big hurricane flat screen televisions for our Motel 6 while we're here. So I'm like, okay, honey. And then she says, and while we're at it, this is a shabby carpet. I think a little something thicker would be nice. Let's get some carpet for this. And, and, and not only that, but maybe, some, maybe, maybe what we ought to do here is we ought to redecorate a little bit and get maybe some paint. You're going, this is the weirdest store I ever heard. You don't do that. If you're staying three days at a Motel 6, you don't decorate the place. Right? If you're staying three days at the Motel 6, you don't buy a flat screen TV for the next people that are going to check in there. If you're staying three days at the Motel 6, you don't make all your investments in the Motel 6. Because you're only staying three days. All right. It's time to sing. And Pastor Birch is going to pray. Right?